Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The best time to get a great deal on a Jeep 4xe SUV is now, during the summer of Jeep event. Well-qualified lessees get a low mileage lease on the 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe for $339 a month for 24 months with $5,699 due at signing. Tax title, license extra, no security deposit required. Call 1-888-925-JEEP for details. Requires dealer contribution and lease through Stellantis Financial. Extra charge for miles over 20000 Includes 7500 EV cap cost reduction. Not all customers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 95. Jeep is a registered trademark. The accelerated Bachelor of Science in Nursing program from Marion University lets you earn your nursing degree in as few as 16 months of professional nursing study. Visit our ABSN learning site and learn how our nursing skills and simulation labs give you hands-on experience. We offer tours every month. Find out how you can apply your bachelor's degree in any field toward Marion's accredited nursing degree program and a rewarding new career. Search Marion ABSN today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. Whether you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network or you're listening to the podcast, I appreciate you joining me today on this Thanksgiving week. And we are going to talk about one of the shockingly few Thanksgiving movies ever made, but also my personal favorite, John Hughes' 1987 comedy classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring John Candy and Steve Martin. Now, I'd known about this movie for my entire life. This is one of those boxes that I remember seeing on the shelf at the video store, but I didn't come to it until much later, probably less than 10 years ago. It's one of those things that you know by reputation. You've seen the different jokes. You've seen the famous scenes. But what I wasn't prepared for when I watched this film the first time is just how touching and affecting this movie is, largely because you have such great leads in John Candy and Steve Martin. You know, nothing grinds my gears worse than some chowderhead who doesn't know when to keep his big trap shut. You catch me running off of the mouth, just give me a poke in the chops. One thing that I think is interesting to look at as far as where this film falls in John Hughes' filmography, and I'm talking specifically as a director. As a writer, he had done more adult-themed films like Mr. Mom and Vacation. But as a director, this was the first non-teenager film, quote-unquote, that John Hughes had made. And there was some genuine skepticism as far as whether he was going outside of his lane, whether he was capable of making a movie that was actually about adults. And when we look at directors like John Hughes and we look at their filmographies, I think over time there is this tendency to homogenize it, look at it out of order or not really contextualize anything. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for John Hughes as a director was outside of what people perceived as his comfort zone, even if that's not necessarily the way that he saw it. I didn't sit down and say, well, I'm going to do a series of teen films and I'll return to adult material. The reason I wrote Breakfast Club was because I wanted to do something that was very small. It's, you know, I figured if, if it didn't cost anything, they'd let me direct it. Before he was a writer and later a director, he worked at an advertising company called Leo Burnett in Chicago. And there was a business trip where he was trying to get home from New York to Chicago. There was bad weather. He got sent all around the country. So this was not a foreign concept for him. As a matter of fact, this was taken from his real life as much as or more than 
the earlier films that he had written and directed. I think that there's a perception around so many that he was just a director who could do the high school movie. And Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one that proves that theory completely wrong. Because when I look at all of his movies, you know, when you're younger, you're going to relate to those movies. You know, I used to say that Ferris Bueller's Day Off maybe is the one that I related to the most. But getting older uh, and now and, and getting closer to middle age myself, I now see the value of so many things in this film. And I see now why John Hughes may have wanted to break out of that mold that he felt like he'd been cast in to tell this story. When you're breaking down the movie, both the plot and the way that the characters work, the one thing that always surprises me and, and, and surprised me the most the first time I saw it is that this is a very simple concept, but very complex characters. And I was reading an interview from Paul Hirsch, who is a legendary film editor. He edited Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He also edited Star Wars. He edited Carrie. He edited The Empire Strikes Back. When they were editing this film, the original cut was reportedly something around four hours long. And so if there was an adjustment for John Hughes to make, I think it may have been honing in on these characters, honing in on the story, and figuring out how to characterize both Neil and Dell. The movie is a very tricky balancing act, and, and, I, and we're going to go through it a little bit step by step as to where your sympathies lie and who you're rooting for. And you could very easily tip the scale one way or the other. You could make Dell completely unlikable. You could make Neil completely unlikable. You're not a very tolerant person. Look, you've been under my skin since New York, starting with ripping off my cab. God, you're a tight ass. Worst case scenario, you're going to hate both of these guys. And that would be disastrous for this movie. So when you when I hear about how this movie was made and and how long it took, it took three months to shoot. It took you know it was a very rushed edit. They had to do test screening after test screening after test screening. I think part of it is that John Hughes wrote very complex characters where your your sympathy as an audience is going to shift as it goes on, and that's not easy to do. It's not easy to do narratively. It's not easy to do on a performance level, and I think it's, it's somewhat miraculous that they were able to nail it with this movie. So as the movie opens, we see Steve Martin's Neil uh, in this meeting, this never-ending meeting with his executive who's trying to choose between different marketing strategies. He's late for a plane. And this is the standard movie setup of a working class guy wants to get home to his family. And then you have the, the again, more standard comedic setup of it's New York City and I can't find a taxi cab. One thing that I always forget is that Kevin Bacon is the guy who is racing Neil uh, to get his taxi cab. It's in the sequence where the movie seems to be laying uh, the foundation for Dell to be the antagonist to Neil's protagonist. He takes his cab, even though he's completely unaware that he's done it. You go to the airport and, you know, he's kind of annoying. Then they sit down next to each other and he is your worst nightmare. He really is. He is the person that you don't want to sit next to on a plane. Oh, oh, that feels good. Oh, God, I'm telling you. My dogs are barking today. That in combination with everything else that Neil's been going through, the fact that he wants to get home, the fact that he's been bumped to coach and he's not happy with the airline. Again, you're setting up the audience expectation that Neil is the protagonist and now Dell is going to be one of the obstacles in his way to getting home. And a lesser movie would have continued with that dynamic. I think it's to the credit of John Hughes that they then begin to shift your allegiance 
as they get stranded and the movie progresses. One of my favorite details about Dell, and I think it's such a simple thing seemingly, is the fact that John Hughes gave him this obscure and yet completely boring profession. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. I sell shower curtain rings. Best in the world. It's interesting in the sense that you, I don't know anyone that has that job or anyone that's ever had that job, uh, but it's also interesting in that it is completely uninteresting. But I think that's key to establishing Dell's character later on in the sense that, you know, when Steve Martin points this out, he's the one that says like, yeah, well, you may think it's dumb, but I like it. And the people that I sell things to like me, you're almost as an audience invited to look at Dell with the same scorn that Steve Martin does at the beginning of the movie, because later when Neil feels that guilt, you as an audience feel that guilt as well. And that's a risky move because a lot of times audiences don't want to be made to feel guilty. But I think John Hughes had enough faith in his actors to believe that they could pull this off. And it's obvious that John Hughes feels a lot of sympathy for Dell's character. I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. In an article that was written by Vanity Fair uh, shortly after he passed away, it states that in the fictional world of Shermer, from which everything in the John Hughesiverse sort of revolves, uh, you have different sides of town. And so on one side of town, you have the upper class uh, girl played by Molly Ringwald in The Breakfast Club. On the other side of town, you have Bender, who would be Judd Nelson's character uh, from The Breakfast Club. But he also said that Dell would be and was from, in his mind, the same side of Shermer. So Dell is trying his best to be nice, but also at the same time, he's had a rough life. He doesn't have the privilege that Neil has. He hasn't had the, the kind of comfortable family life. He has great tragedy in his life, and you don't know this at the time. Uh, but that's what, what I like about this movie is when you go back and you rewatch it and you know more about this character and you understand where he's coming from. You like Dell more and you dislike Neil more uh, because you now know what's going on and you just want to say, oh, cut him some slack, man. You don't know what he's going through. That's a great character. That's great writing because it gets you involved as a viewer every single time. It's not just a one-trick pony where it's a comedy. Once you know all the jokes, it's not funny anymore. You really engage with these characters and you want to see them succeed. All I'm going to have around here to prove that I was here was some shower curtain rings that didn't fall down. Great legacy, huh? I think one thing that John Hughes also did very smartly was use the natural energies of his two actors, but maybe not in the way that you would expect. This is very much a John Candy role. Uh, yes, he veers into unlikability, but it's still a comic unlikability. However, with Steve Martin, you have a, a very often broadly comic actor. We were robbed! Do you think so? But in this role, he's much more restrained. Uh, but out of that restraint comes the comedy, which is something that Steve Martin himself talked about as the movie was being released. Part of the difference of this character than anything I've ever done is that the serious base of it sets up the comedy. Like the more serious and tense the character is, the funnier it gets when he goes crazy. This is also something that was brought up by Edie McClurg, who shares one of my favorite scenes in the movie with Steve Martin, uh, when she talks about the natural energies of both actors and how John Hughes used it in the film. He took the real personality of Steve Martin and the real personality of John Candy and then amplified them to be in this film together. And where I think you realize that you're in for a little bit different of an experience than just the standard sort of odd couple sitcom-y film 
is that scene in the hotel room that essentially ends the first act of the movie. In another movie, that would be an act three scene. The scene where Neil finally breaks down and tells Dell everything that's wrong and why he hates him. And then you probably go for some kind of an emotional conclusion and then the movie will be over. But by doing this in the first act, you're already establishing that this is a very complicated dynamic between these characters. Honey, I'd, li- I'd like you to meet Dell Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. Most importantly, you're softening Dell. You see the humanity underneath him. And that is such a beautiful and, and heartbreaking moment from John Candy. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. It's such a touching moment. It's such a real and honest moment. And I really think that John Candy... And it's been said so many times before, but doesn't get enough credit, number one, for how good of an actor that he was. And also really wasn't given the opportunity to do that kind of acting very much. I think that he did get a little pigeonholed as kind of the zany, likable guy, which is great. He did. He was great as that, uh, but he had so many other things to offer. And I think that this movie, more than anyone else, gave him the opportunity to showcase everything. He could do the zany, crazy stuff, dancing around to the mess around in the car, which is a very John Candy, big physical comedy sequence. But then you have these smaller moments where he's allowed to act uh, just with his face, uh, to do things like when he's looking first at the picture of his wife, uh, he doesn't betray really what's going on there. But it's it's so well done that when you go back to watch, you understand the emotions that are playing on his face. I, I just This is my favorite John Candy performance, and it's probably a cliche thing because it's probably what everybody says. But this really, really is because as great as Steve Martin is in this movie, John Candy's better. Now you got no outside mirror. No, we lost that. You have no functioning gauges. No, not a one. However, the radio still works, funny as that may seem. I think it's funny that after that very touching scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, you then have probably the most famous joke from the movie, which is, of course, when they wake up in bed and John Candy says that uh, his hand is between two pillows and then Steve Martin says, Those aren't pillows. (laughs) It's a funny joke, but in a weird way, Uh, That part of the scene has aged the worst for me because I think it's sort of an outdated depiction of gay panic. Like, oh, two dudes have to sleep in a bed together and they have to pretend like they have to be super manly and talk about football and stuff. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Bears got a great team this year. They're going to go all the way. I think now you could still do that same joke, but you wouldn't feel the necessity to have these two characters play it off as if they have to protect their manhood. I think it's more of just acknowledging the fact that you just slept with your hand in somebody's butt crack. Uh, that's that's uh, weird enough. Oh, yeah. So looking at the structure of the screenplay, if the hotel scene, the confrontation, the first one between Neil and Dell is where your sympathies start to shift... Literally, I think at the almost exact halfway point of the movie is where I think as an audience, you swing all the way back over to Dell and you're not rooting as much for Neil anymore. That's the restaurant scene where after all they've gone through, uh, Neil still tries to ditch Dell and you can tell he's very hurt by it. You know, it's just harder for two people to travel, you know? Yeah. Yeah, sure it is. And if you've got reservations... Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Now you're getting angry at Neil for pushing this guy away because you spend enough time with it, you're like, yeah, okay, he's annoying, but he's got a good heart. He wants to help. He's not a perfect person, but you're a snob. 
you're being a real snob. That is smartly what kind of bisects the movie between I'm rooting for Neil and I'm rooting for Dell, at least for me. Uh, and and I think that the movie punishes Neil after that because he, things get progressively worse and worse for him, uh, particularly immediately after when he tries to rent the car to go home. He goes to the airport. The car is not there. He has to walk back to the terminal. And then you have the scene between Steve Martin and Edie McClurg, which for my money is the most tactical use of the F word in cinematic history. Then you can give me a f***ing automobile, a f***ing Datsun, a f***ing Toyota, a f***ing Mustang, a f***ing Buick, four f***ing wheels and a seat. But where I think that the comedy lies, it's not in the fact that Steve Martin uses the F word 18 or 19 times. That's not the joke. I want a f***ing car right f***ing now. What I love is that it's all to set up this punchline with Edie McClurg who gets to deliver one of the best one-liners in any comedy, as far as I'm concerned. May I see your rental agreement? I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're And again, I think that this is setting up a very key flaw for Neil's character, which is that he's not wrong to be annoyed by this person's behavior. She's on the phone. She's giving her the one minute finger. She's on a personal phone call. Your sympathies should be with Neil. However, he, through his own personality, causes you to turn against him. And by the end of that conversation, you're clapping because he got his comeuppance. And I think it's a microcosm of what goes on between Neil and Dell throughout the film. Dell's behavior is objectively annoying. However, because Neil has no patience, your sympathy shift to Dell because you want to see Neil get that comeuppance for being so closed-minded and snobbish. And that's where the dynamic really shines uh, between the interactions of characters in this movie. And that's why you're constantly on the spectrum back and forth about who you're rooting for, who you're rooting against, and it keeps you engaged because the road movie is uh, is an old trope. The idea of like, we're going from here to here. The odd couple it literally is a sitcom premise. The two mismatched people. Uh, what makes this a special comedy and not just one that was forgettable amongst so many other road movies and buddy movies and whatever else are the complicated relationships that these characters have with each other and really with the audience as well. As much trouble as I've had on this little journey, I'm sure one day I'm going to look back and laugh. You think so? (laughs) Oh, I'm laughing already. (laughs) Oh, God. Also, very quickly, while we're talking about Edie McClurg, John Hughes has always smartly used great casting directors and has always had a great eye himself for actors to put in his films. And Edie McClurg was a great find for him. She'd already been in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, But one that I always forget and who is just hilarious in this movie is Dylan Baker, who, again, Dylan Baker is an actor probably best known for his dramatic work. But... (laughs) Him playing this weirdo who shows up with the spitting with the tobacco and then just that snorting. Train don't run out of Wichita, unless you're a hog or a cattle. (laughs) That is such a great and memorable scene from him. And again, shows that for John Hughes, it doesn't matter if you're at the top of the call sheet, the bottom or the middle of the call sheet. He always finds great little ticks for these characters to have and is able to find what actors do well 
and exploit that in a good way to use it in the movie. Whether it's Dylan Baker in this film, the receptionist at the French restaurant in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty. There's so many great small parts in John Hughes movies, and I think that's another thing that makes it memorable, is that you don't just remember the first two or three people that are on the credits list. You remember almost everybody in the movie for different reasons. Her first baby? Come out sideways. She didn't scream or nothing. All of this brings us to the third act and the movie's real emotional gut punch, and we're going to talk about that and the varying ways that this movie has been a very personal part of my life right after this. If you're like a lot of people, you probably almost never go to the doctor, maybe when you're sick or hurt, but that's pretty much it. I know I certainly don't go nearly as much as I should. Well, now, finally, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your long-term health and get personalized care right from your own home. SteadyMD is your personal doctor online, and it is telehealth done right. You start off by taking a quiz to get matched to your primary care physician based on your specific health needs. Then you set a one-hour appointment online with that physician, and after that, your doctor is available to you anytime you need by phone, text, or video chat. Now, unlike some other services, this is not just some random doctor on call that you'll be seeing Each doctor at SteadyMD has a limited number of patients so that they can give you the time and attention you deserve. I went and took the quiz, and it really does only take a couple minutes, but it is an exhaustive list of questions. What kind of diet do you have? Are you struggling with obesity, stress, asthma, Uh, lots of different kinds of conditions, but it's a very simple questionnaire. It's not complicated, and it doesn't take very long to finish. And what I loved about the results after I took that quiz was that I got a list of doctors based on the answers that I gave, and I didn't have to Google them or find some kind of reviews online. It was a very exhaustive list of who these doctors were, what their qualifications are, what their specialties are, and it helps you decide where you want to focus your own care. And SteadyMD can handle so many different things, whether you want to get healthy, stay healthy, manage chronic conditions that you already have, get help sleeping, help with your anxiety, losing weight. There are so many different things that they can help you with, and it's all personalized to make sure you get the care that you want. All of this is done from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to worry about waiting rooms. You don't have to worry about germs. All of the prescriptions are sent to your local pharmacy. All of your medical records are in one place, and you get unlimited access to your doctor for $99 a month. No additional visit fees or co-pays. Plus, if you already have health insurance, SteadyMD will help you understand your insurance and help you get the most out of it. But if you don't, don't worry. Health insurance is not required to use SteadyMD. SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. So go to SteadyMD.com movies where you can take the free quiz and get matched to the doctor that's right for you. SteadyMD.com movies. There is no risk and no long-term commitment. Once again, that's SteadyMD.com movies. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So as we're entering the third act of this movie, the automobiles section, uh, really, this is its own little roller coaster. And I like the fact that you've sort of been ramping up these big comic set pieces until you get to act three. And you can go so over the top and almost uh, zany. You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk! 
How would he know where we're going? One of the things that makes me laugh the most, and it shouldn't belong in this kind of comedy, is as they're approaching these two semi-trucks, when they turn into skeletons, and then Steve Martin looks, and John Candy becomes the devil. (laughs) That is such a weird oddball idea to put into the movie and yet it works because this is the movie reaching its peak and that's something that John Hughes knows so well it's not just comedy it's not just drama it's not just different types of comedy it's where and when to use them and he uses them masterfully not just in this movie but throughout most of his movies he's able to juggle those tones and juggle those character beats in a very effective way so we have the zany madcap energy of this crash sequence then we have a great back and forth between uh, john candy steve martin and michael mckeon who's playing the police officer who pulls them over you have any idea how fast you were going uh, funnily enough i was just talking to my friend about that our speedometers melted and as a result it's very hard to say with any degree of accuracy exactly uh, how fast we were going. And all this is setting you up for this emotional ending that I didn't see coming the first time I saw the movie. Even though I knew the the those aren't pillows scene and, and, and the, the car rental scene, I didn't really know that much about the movie and I just assumed that the whole thing was this kind of road comedy. I didn't realize that it had this gut punch waiting for you at the end. I don't have a home. Marie's been dead for eight years. Then you look back on the whole movie and you realize that, yes, like one of the reasons that there was this undercurrent of sadness to this character isn't just that Neil was treating him so poorly. It's that his life is very sad. He's a man who who doesn't have a home, who, who lives his life on the road and who lost really the only thing that really meant anything to him. Love is not a big enough word. It's not a big enough word for how I feel about my wife. And your heart just completely shatters. And then I love the way that they take this very drawn out moment between these two and and the way that they do that smash cut with the music uh, to them walking down the street. Steve Martin comes home, his family's there, his wife is at the top of the stairs. You understand their relationship to each other. And that's the important thing. And it's also what really drives the emotion home. And so much of John Candy's performance in this film is down to how he delivers things and how he speaks and the way he delivers dialogue, etc. But his finest acting, in my mind, is that look on his face. It says so many things. There's there's embarrassment there because he doesn't feel like he should be there. He feels like he's intruding. There's happiness that his friend is has, has come home to his wife. There's sadness that this is something that he lost and it's what he loved most in the world. All of these things you can see in his eyes. He doesn't need to say a thing. It, it's so hard to do that. Uh, and, and not even just from an emotional standpoint, although from an emotional standpoint it is, but it's almost like a gymnast or an athlete. And this is something that I've never been able to understand how actors do. To be able to emote like that with your face. I mean, there's muscles that you have to be able to control consciously, but at the same time, make them feel natural or else it comes off artificial. So much about acting that I think people don't even talk about beyond just like, can you cry? Does it sound like your lines are stilted? And John Candy nails everything about that moment. And the reason that I know that is because I myself have read that moment in a few different ways over the years. The first time I saw this movie, uh, I just felt very sad for him. I felt very, very sad for Dell's character because he lost this thing that he's never going to get back. 
later in my life, and it wasn't that much later, um, I read it a very different way because several years ago, I spent a very lonely Thanksgiving myself. I was in Los Angeles. It was very difficult for me to fly home for Thanksgiving because I was usually working. I think I was working at that time. That particular year, you know, I, I didn't really have anybody in my life that I was seeing. I had friends that a lot of them had paired off already. And so they were doing progressively less and less Friendsgivings, if you will, more and more doing things with either their family or their partner's families. And I, I had some friends that were getting together to do things, but I hadn't gotten any invitations. And I, and I just felt it was very kind of sad <laughs> to call and say, oh, hey, are you doing anything? Can I, can I come? And so I spent it alone. I ate Thanksgiving dinner in a open, empty El Torito Mexican restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. And I remember thinking, and, and I may have watched this movie because I, I, I watch it most times at Thanksgiving, but I remember watching this movie the night before. Maybe it was that day. And I, I, I got very emotional because at that time, I read that ending a very different way. I read it as, could this be me? Could this be what my future is? That, that I'm going to have to rely on the kindness of others um, and that it's possible that I could in future years have many more Thanksgivings like this, that maybe that's just how the cards are going to shake out for me. And that was, that was a very depressing thought for me, quite frankly. However, now when I look at it, um, you know, not too long after that, I met Mara and, and now she is a very important part of my life and we are partners in, in every sense of the word. And so now when I watch this movie and we get to the end, and it really struck me this way the most when I rewatched it for the show. I, I see hope on John Candy's face because maybe because I have gone through this journey, but maybe this is the event that makes him realize that it's time to to get back into the world, to to get off the road, to find that family again. Uh, and so I still see the sadness. I, I I still see the you know him wishing that he could have this thing, but now I also see a glimmer of hope. This is what I love about movies. And what I love about great performances in movies particularly. And and why when people say, oh, how can you watch the same movie over and over again? It's because as your life goes on, the same movie, and it is objectively the same movie, nothing's changed about it unless it's like, you know, Star Wars or something. But 99% of the movies, nothing has changed about it except for you. You change. And by that extension the way that you experience these movies changes. And that's where so much of the magic of movies is for me. It's that it is one of the few mediums, and, and there are others, but it's one of the few mediums that will evolve with you, even though itself it itself does not evolve. It evolves with you. And this movie is one that has evolved with me. And my reaction to it and how I feel at the end of it changes and has changed almost every time I see it. So... That's another reason why this is such a great film, because I think it means so many different things to so many people. And when you can find a movie that can give you comedy, that can give you drama, that can pull your heart out, but also perhaps give you that warm feeling inside, that feeling of family and closeness, uh, that's a rare movie. I think it is a John Hughes classic. I think it is a Thanksgiving classic. And I think it is one of the great comedies of the 1980s and really 
almost any decade. And it's what led me to buy the film on Blu-ray when and where I could. I don't know exactly when I bought this version of the film. As with so many others, particularly Paramount comedies, uh, there's been a lot of different editions of this movie that have come out on DVD, Blu-ray, etc. over the years. So this is one of them. I like the fact that it at least approximated keeping the original artwork. There is that kind of ugly digital sign there, but at least you have the key art intact, which is more than you can say for a lot of other movies. There are some pretty good special features on this disc as well. There is about a 15-minute special called The Story of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is really just uh, cut-downs of a press conference that was done with Hughes, Candy, and Martin back in the 80s as the movie was getting ready to be released. It was as if I wrote it myself, and I'm my lawyer's working on that now. <laughs> <laughs> There are also a couple of documentaries that are just about John Hughes himself, not necessarily as it ties to the movie, but if you don't know a lot about him and about his philosophy and how he approached uh, the different, the way he made films, etc., then I think it's a really interesting look. Those run about an hour long when you combine both of them. There's also a tribute to John Candy that's a few minutes long, an interview portion that is about the fact that this was the first John Hughes film made, quote unquote, for adults. And then there's one deleted scene that takes place on the airplane that's a pretty funny, but you know, you can see why it was probably left out of the film. Would you like a bun? Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, flag's fun. No, no. <laughs> Would you like the bun? Yeah, what's that? I'm offering you a bun. And that pretty much wraps it up for planes, trains, and automobiles. If you are listening to this on the week of Thanksgiving, I hope you have a very happy and safe holiday. We will be back next week with a focus on some other films centering around the holidays. That's what the next few shows are going to be about. I look forward to breaking down some of those with you. John Hughes may come up again before the end of this holiday season. We'll see. If you're listening to us and you want to check out the video version of the podcast, you can check us out over on the Schmodown Entertainment Network on YouTube. If you're watching us on SCN and you want to listen to the show, I would love it if you would throw the podcast a subscription and a listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcasts. That's another way to help grow this show. And I really appreciate the support. Also, if you would like to leave a rating and review that helps out a lot we'll be back next week with some more holiday fun but until then it's time to go back on the show thanks for watching Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.